Hello and welcome to the Full of Beans podcast, hosted by myself, Hannah Hickenbotham. Throughout these podcast episodes, we will speak to a range of individuals about their experience of eating disorders, with the aim of increasing awareness and understanding, whilst reducing stigma and isolation. Please note that the topics discussed in this podcast may be triggering for some individuals, so tread lightly, check in with yourself and reflect on these conversations. Today I'm joined by Emily Setti. Emily was diagnosed with atypical anorexia in 2019. Emily joins us today to discuss receiving an eating disorder diagnosis as an adult and to discuss several eating disorder myths and debunk them. Hello Emily, how are you doing today? Yeah, I'm good thank you, really pleased to be here, thanks for having me. Yeah, it's, it's so nice to actually see your face because I've only spoken to you on yeah. email. And normally, like, I'll see, I don't know, like an icon of someone or like, like I'll have a look through their Instagram first. I was like, I have no idea. What oh, you really? Look like. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, yeah. I probably look very hot right now in the heat wave that we're having. Yeah. <laughs> but no, likewise, it's really yeah, nice they- to, to be able to see you as well. Yeah, absolutely. It looks like you've got like a nice like thing I'd wear on holiday. Yeah, so um, it's all my loose fitting holiday clothes are coming out right now. Yeah, nice. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah, that is what we need. (laughs) Um, So yeah, thank you so much for joining me. It's really nice to be able to chat to you. Um, I wondered if you want to start, I think it's always a nice place to start talk about your experience but obviously we're talking about kind of stereotypes today with eating disorders so maybe as you go along like if you want to say and I didn't think this um, met the stereotype and then how that affected you yeah for sure so yeah like you said in your introduction it was 2019 um, when I got my diagnosis right at the end of the year and um, it was pretty much then the start of that year when um, you know, I started to develop, I suppose, my problems with eating, I guess. Um, and I was mm-hmm. 32 at the time. I think I was 32. <laughs> you know, when you get to that age and you're like, how old was I in 2019? <laughs> um, yeah, so I was around 32. And so obviously off the bat that I suppose it's, it, well, it's not probably that unusual, but it's not seen as, you know, mm-hmm. stereotypically the case. And, and it was kind of interesting for me because, um, like, so my eating disorder was a restrictive one, right? So I'm restricting what I eat. And it all started off through, well, I was getting married that year. So in January comes, I was getting married in June. You think, okay, let's, um, you know, get in shape for the wedding. I, I didn't need to get in shape. There was absolutely nothing wrong with me, right, at the time. Um, I'd already had my dress fitted. I already knew everything that I was doing. But, you know, it was, it was just this normalised thing, I suppose, that six months before your wedding, that's what women apparently want to do. And a lot of people said that around me, right? I think what was really interesting about my journey into it was how celebrated it was almost right and I'm not putting that on people you know to make them feel guilty about it or anything like that at all you know it's it's part of Mm. our culture isn't it my behaviors around food and the restriction I was doing and the way I was um exercising and then my body changing around that was at least in the early days celebrated quite a lot by the people around me right so I think that's a really interesting thing isn't it that actually in our culture Mm. um if we're talking about sort of stereotypical like myth-based stuff right that that actually disordered behavior is celebrated um even by you know I I um I lost I stopped having periods um around the end of March um and um of that year and so you're back and forth aren't you to the doctors over this mystery of the the missing periods and even the doctors didn't nobody picked up on it at all 
some of them would make comments like, oh, you look very like toned. Are you exercising a lot? But I had one doctor actually um, tell me it was a good thing. Um, and he made a comment about what he thought my body fat percentage might be. And he actually said it was a good thing. But the number he gave was a number that women wouldn't have their periods at that number. So he was celebrating a number or, or claiming a number, you know, he was just coming up with it. Even though, right, well, I wouldn't have my periods at that number. So, and now you're telling me, right, I'll refer you to this to figure out your, your periods. And so, yeah, I mean, that was what was really remarkable about it for me, that um, so many people around you don't, they're not even neutral about it. They actually think it's a good thing. That doctor told me, I said my husband worries about how much I exercise. And the doctor told me, um, well, you know, sometimes, um, sometimes people can get jealous when people get in good shape. And he said, um, you know, maybe sometimes, particularly we see this in couples, one gets in good shape and the other one gets a bit funny and makes comments. Um, and he said, but wow. you know, as long as you don't think you're doing anything wrong. And I was like, okay. I mean, it's just mind blowing, isn't it? But I wonder whether if I'd been yeah. younger, if I, I, I don't know, w would the response have been the same? I don't, I don't know. So it's interesting. It is, that is really interesting. And, you know, like you say, it's that glorification of those behaviors and also like when you just said there about the doctor saying to you um well as long as you don't think you're doing anything wrong like i would take you saying my husband is slightly concerned about my exercising patterns as i don't know how to put this into words because mm -hmm. i am worried so i'm going to tell you someone else is worried and I, and that's me asking you you know, yeah. is there an issue? At this point, we, we yeah. were right into the year. This was around the summer. And I was in quite a bit of distress, I suppose, by that point. And yeah, you know, the, the, the doctor said to me, he goes, do, do you think you're exercising too much or anything? And I honestly thought I could burst into tears. And yeah, exactly as you say, I was articulating it as a way of, oh, well, you know, my husband says this, because that's the, that's mm -hmm. the way that, that you feel strong enough to be able to say something, right? And I find it really interesting yeah the the way in which that kind of stuff isn't picked up and I wonder whether it's about like how we relate to dieting and body image and, and all of that stuff in in our culture because um I've always compared it to you know alcohol problems you know when they say oh do you have an alcohol problem or not and there's all these little signs and symptoms mm -hmm. and one of them is specifically have family and friends commented on your drinking and suggested that you know you might have a problem or you need to cut down or something that is seen as a sign mm -hmm. that you might have a problem with alcohol but with eating, you know, disordered eating or exercise or whatever, we, it wasn't picked up on in that way. And I, yeah, I don't, I don't know why that is. I think maybe a combination of my age, I think, but also I just think the way health services in our country relate to weight and, and the, the whole obesity mm. agenda and all of that, I think can really cause this stuff. Not yeah. to be, whereas, you know, you think of people that are in bigger bodies, they go to the doctors over completely unrelated topics and they're being asked about their weight and their diet so we have yeah. a complete up and down relationship yeah. with it, don't we yeah um I, th I think you're you're totally right there's such that that there's such a glorification of weight loss and I was I'd probably say in a similar situation to you so I guess you know I was 14 when my eating disorder developed so that is you know if, if we're going to talk about stereotypes that's stereotypical age to get an eating disorder but still at 14 I had like mums of my friends come up to me and congratulate me on the fact that oh, I've lost weight and I wouldn't say that I have ever been 
and maybe it was like you know when you're like in those awkward teen years when you're like you're, mm-hmm. you're finding your shape at the end of the day um but I don't think I was ever overweight but I had so mm. many comments and I just look back and I think I don't know <laughs> Maybe this is wrong of me to say, but I almost expect it mm. in adults because I think everybody is almost striving for that sort of desired body. And, and like you say, in our society, weight loss is glorified. But it was the fact that adults were saying mm. it to a teenager that I was like, we realize, like, we, we must be so ingrained with this, like, pursuit mm. for thinness that we're actually congratulating our world on that. Um and I don't think anybody's doing it because they want people to be ill. You know, as soon as I kind of came out, as it were, no. to my family and friends that, yes, I've, I've got this diagnosis now, all of them were really concerned. They, they'd be happy if I put on a mm. load of weight, as long as I was healthy and happy, right? Nobody wanted that for me. So I don't think, you know, it's this intentional thing of, right, let's encourage eating disorder behaviors. I, no. I think it's just, yeah, this, this unconscious celebration of that almost, that we don't even realize what we're what we're perpetuating. And I think that's, it's, and it's interesting, isn't it, with eating disorders versus, say, disordered eating, because, um, you know, over, mm. the, over the course of that year, and I'm not proud of it at all, but, you know, when my husband was raising concerns, I'd often try and say, well, yes, you know, I know I'm engaging in some disordered eating behaviours, but, but please do not diagnose me and all of this. And, mm-hmm. and actually, that's because disordered eating is so prevalent in our society, right? Yeah. You know, I'm not saying people went to the level that I did, no, and I wouldn't wish it on anybody. But when you actually look around, particularly the women that you know, but also the men as well, to some extent, the way in which they talk about their own bodies and food and, 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 and everywhere you look, isn't it? I mean, it's not necessarily just the people in your life. It's, it's everything that's out there, right? Um, and I think that yeah. it makes recovery harder, but I also think it's a, it's a hook into the disorder itself. Because those compliments, mm. um, you know, and the positive reinforcement, and, and, and that's another myth, isn't it? That people say with restrictive disorders, it's all about just a diet and they just want to be skinny. And mm. it's really difficult explaining to people that it's not that. I honestly, and people won't necessarily believe me who, who knew me, but I honestly did not even realise I was losing weight. For me, the behaviours were all about this coping mechanism, this thing I didn't even really realise I was doing. When I then went into, into mm. shops and clothes didn't fit me or old clothes didn't fit me, I, I was like, oh, why? Why has that happened? My head was not mm-hmm. on the size of my body. It was on, um, right, I've, I've got to do all of this with food and, you know, and, and all of those rituals and stuff that you develop um, with, with one of these disorders that you mm. almost develop without realizing. And then suddenly it becomes mm-hmm. apparent, right? And you're trapped in it. Um, but then because you've had all this positive reinforcement the whole time, um, it becomes very difficult to let it go and go in the opposite direction because that's what recovery is, isn't it? It's doing the complete opposite of all these things you've been told are really fantastic for so long. Yeah. Yeah. So for you, did it start as something that that wasn't to like oriented around your body? Because if I'm being honest, mine, my eating just sort of started because I did want to lose weight and then for me like I don't want to say you know like the stereotype is true but for me personally the stereotype Mm -hmm. of a diet gone wrong I was put on a diet age 14 so that and then it got out of hand um because of the characteristics I have but was it 
for you a different yeah so it's interesting because yeah I think what's one of the biggest risk factors for developing eating disorder going on a diet right and so yeah actually (laughs) I think just to say to people oh you just want to be skinny you've just gone it it can trivialize it actually Mm. but that link is a really serious one right Um, and so I think that almost the stereotypical way in which people say it can trivialize it, but it is an important thing to recognize, right. And take seriously. Um, I think for me, so by the time I was getting married to my husband, we've been together 10 years. We both really loved food. That was another myth that popped up, didn't it? Oh, people with eating disorders don't love food. No, (laughs) anybody that knows you, me will, will be able to tell you that I love food. There's nothing you could put in front of me that I wouldn't eat. Um, really enjoy food. Um, (laughs) the problem for me was portion control um, not that, I mean, I throw out all that kind of diet culture terminology now, but so at the beginning of most years, my husband or you know, my boyfriend that he would have been at the time, we would always say, right, you know, let's get our portions in control. Let's just like get all this sorted out. And we've probably tried that like every January as a new year's Eve, as a, you know, a new year's resolution or whatever. And then by like day three, we're like, is this the amount of pasta you're actually meant to eat? Absolutely not. And we'd be sacking it off. You know, we didn't want any of it. I think the problem for me that year was I had a lot going on. So obviously there was the wedding in um, in June, which was wonderful. But, you know, it's something that you've got to think about and plan for. I also started a new job. I'd, um, I'd, I was, I'd done a PhD for the previous f- few years. I then got a lecturing job. Absolutely, you know my dream job come true. Fantastic. But, you know, suddenly, like I've spent all this time studying, really, really, you know, overwhelmed almost by, by that job, you know, imposter syndrome, all those things that you get, right. And that are really prevalent in the, in the academic world. And, um, and probably, you know, a lot of other professions as well. And, um, but we definitely see it in academia. I also had some, um, some family problems <laughs> as well, which obviously, you know, isn't just my kind of story to tell, but, um, there was there was stuff going on with um, with my family that was quite serious actually and had been going on for quite a while, and I think for me, almost when I look back on it, I think subconsciously, the the behaviours around the portion control, like you know the, those the sort of stuff that you do like and and counting calories and all of that, I. I think felt like a really good coping mechanism, right? A lot of things in my life felt out of control. Um, but this one thing I could do was count how many calories I'd eaten and blah, blah, blah. And, and so when I went through the kind of recovery process, it made me realize if, if those behaviors would have been subconsciously making you feel that little bit more in control of everything. And then suddenly people are saying, oh, you look great. What's going on? And giving me a lot of positive reinforcement. And I remember thinking to myself at one point, well, you know, I might not be the smartest. I might not be the prettiest, the the most interesting, the most this, the most of that, you know, all those negative things you have about yourself. But the one thing I can do is this. This is the one thing I can achieve that people seem to relate to in a positive way. It's not that I want to be skinny. It's that I want to be something good, something that I can feel like proud of that can make me walk out of the door and feel confident, right? And this is the only thing that I've been able to control so far that, that's en- enabled that to happen. So this is what I mean about, mm. for me, that relationship between dieting, weight, and the eating disorder was a really complex one. And yeah, I was concerned in the end. I was terrified. By, by the time I was going in to get the diagnosis at the end of 2019, I was terrified of putting weight on. And I was monitoring my body constantly, right? And 
you know, so yeah, at that point, yeah, it was all about your size, but really it was something much deeper than that. The control that you were getting through that, yeah. that sense of being able to cope. I, I, I sort of, um, I remember someone saying in a, um, a, a, you know, an ex-drug addict saying, the first time you take that drug you get addicted to, it's almost like you believe you've found the secret solution to your problems. And you're like, if only I'd known that this one thing could take all my problems away. And for me, the eating disorder was almost like that. It was this coping mechanism that I thought, God, why didn't I do this 10 years ago? Why? why? This is fantastic. I can go mm. bouncing out to work. I was hyper productive at work in the first bit of it. Mm. And it, I felt on top of the world. No one could tell me I was unhappy. But God, by the end of the year, I was unhappy. By the end of the year, I was a mess. Right. Mm. And so I see that similar trajectory almost around eating disorders and drugs in that way. It's definitely mm. a coping mechanism. I think that, um, I don't know who I was having this conversation with the other day. It wasn't on the podcast, but it was, was having this conversation with somebody in that I, I mean, I'm not, I, I, I don't know a lot about drug addictions, um, but I can see from the vague knowledge I have such a, so many commonalities, you know, I think when you initially take a drug and when you initially start with it, like you say, it feels like the best thing in the world. And you think mm. this is the thing, this is going to get me going. This makes me happy, blah, blah, blah. But then every, you know, every time, let's say you take it or, you know, as weeks go by, whatever behavior, if we're talking about the eating disorder you engage mm -hmm. in, it's not enough then. And then, you know, it starts with, you know, I'll cut out a few little things or like I'll reduce my calories a little bit, but then that's not enough. And so you have to reduce them more, you have to cut out more, you have to do more exercise and it just keeps on going and going. And it's the same with drugs. You have to go on to, you know, more mm -hmm. serious drugs and, and larger quantities. And then it gets to the point where it's it's mm -hmm. literally destroying your life. It's it's not having any benefit anymore, and all those benefits that you did see, yeah. completely gone. Um, but I think that in itself is such a, a good thing to talk about and such a stigma because I think often you know people think that you're engaging in those behaviours because it's a choice and because you want to, but it's I don't think it it's not a choice to engage in those behaviours because you get to the point where it's kind of it's the only yeah. thing that you know how to do. It's the only thing that makes you you. And stepping away from them is literally the most terrifying thing. It really thing is. Yeah, I 100% agree with, with all of that. Yeah, one of the myths around it being a choice. And, you know, when people around you may be well-intentioned, but they're saying, just eat, in the same way that they call a person <laughs> in a bigger body, just eat less. And it's just so, just completely mm -hmm. irrelevant. I mean, because it is a coping mechanism. Yeah, it's not making you feel good anymore. There's no benefit to it anymore, but it's staving off. There's no way you can lose it, right? It's the only way you can kind of cope with, with mm. the day-to-day -day and the, the, the physicality of it and the, the, the mental effect of, you know, what it then feels like to have to, like, engage with a meal plan or whatever it is that you've got to do. It's, it's physically unbearable and mentally unbearable, right, in those early days. And I remember someone saying to my partner and I, like, you will just have to like sit with her while she cries her eyes out after dinner. Right. And you're just going to have to go through that. Um, and then eventually you say, it's almost, you know, to use the, the, the analogy with, with drugs again, it's also, it's almost like a bit of a withdrawal, 
right? Because you're putting your body mm, through something yeah. that it really wants to reject. It doesn't want that anymore, right? And it's, you've got to power mm. through it. You've got to sit with so much discomfort and so many thoughts, so many thoughts running around your head that you've just got to ignore. It takes such strength. I actually think, you know, it's an incredibly strong thing to do to overcome or, you know, not, I don't know whether we can say, oh yes, a hundred percent, anybody's ever overcome anything or recovered, but to actually go through that process is, is, it's not, oh yeah, I was being selfish before and now I'm not. It's, it's a really tough thing to do and you wouldn't wish it on anybody. Yeah. So it's definitely not a selfish thing. No, it's, I think the, um, the the recovery process you know i think like you said it is like coming off drugs because at the end of the day let's say you know i don't want to oversimplify it and say like when something's bad bad is happening i would restrict um because i think in the depths of an eating disorder it is more like a consistent thing you're you know you're entrapped it's mm -hmm. not like a i turn it on and i turn it off sort of thing um but i think especially in recovery it can be that you, you you know you might be going along nicely and engaging in recovery then something happens mm -hmm. and you fall back into those behaviors um and i guess you know that's the same with the drug addiction when you're coming off the drugs it might be that things are going well and then you have a bad day or a bad time mm -hmm. and you feel like you need it again so i think there are so many kind of similarities with it but when you were saying about selfishness as well i think that's definitely something that I think people often think in recovery, you know, you, I think you do have a choice to recover. Mm -hmm. And I think that choice does have to come from yourself, but I don't, I don't think it's selfish in the slightest to struggle with recovery or not mm -hmm. want to engage in recovery. I think it's like you says, it said, it's something that takes mm. so much strength to do. Um, and a lot of the time, you know, I don't know. I, I, in my personal opinion, when I was engaging in the eating disorders behaviours, I think to my family, it seemed like I was being selfish because the food mm. choices had to revolve around me and the plans with the family and all that. But I was trying to be the least selfish possible because all that was going mm. on inside, I was just trying to suppress and didn't want to put any on that on them. So I was trying to be like, I don't want all this attention because of what's going on, but actually you know, yeah no that's really yeah it's interesting isn't it and particularly around like restrictive disorders you you almost want to become like smaller and smaller and take up less space and be less imposing on people and then you realize mm -hmm. my god i've just thrown a whole bomb in the middle of a situation and caused more problems actually for people than than i've yeah. solved and for me a lot of the issue for me was around like in my interpersonal relationships i'd I'd often want to be like the really strong one, the one that people came to with their problems and like say my family dynamics with the problems mm -hmm. that we were having. I, I often played that role of almost wanting to be like the family therapist for everybody. And so actually a lot of my recovery was about learning to set boundaries in my relationships and talk more about like how I was feeling about things and not play that role anymore. So actually um, I was finding in my recovery that but it felt really awkward because not only is the food and all the eating behaviors an issue in my relationships, also I'm having to go through this process of, of constantly talking to people about, right, I need this. I, I don't think I'm going to cope in that scenario. Mm -hmm. blah, blah, blah. And yeah, you, I remember thinking a few times, oh my God, I just wish I'd never actually gone and tried to get help. I wish I'd never like told anybody anything about this. Not because I didn't want to get better, but because that, 
the process of recovery basically involves doing the reverse of everything you've spent a lot of your life doing. So it does mm. feel really, really uncomfortable. And I think for me, like in recovery, and I, maybe this is a bit selfish, I, I almost wanted the best of both worlds. I was like, I kind of just want to be really normal around food, mm. but I don't really want my body to change in any particular way. And I don't really want to eat X, Y, and Z. And, but maybe everything will still be fine. And like, I can just recover on that basis. And something I've been thinking about with some of the therapy that I got, a lot of it was the, you know, the relationship you have with your body can often be based on body dysmorphia. You're not as big as you think, and you're not this and that. But some of the books that I've read say about like intuitive eating movement has much more focused on actually challenging. Well, why are you frightened of your body getting bigger? What, what, why, you know, is only one type of body acceptable rather than saying, oh no, you're just deluded about how you look. Should we not be asking the question of why is how you look so vitally important to you? And why is only one type of body or type of appearance acceptable to you as a person? And I think that was the thing. And I would actually be honest and say, that's something I probably still do struggle with. The idea of true acceptance of however your body is going to look at recovery, Right. And I think that can be really hard. And that, yeah. you know, you're saying about how, um, you know, the journey, yeah, it's not, it's not that, oh yeah, today I'm just going to restrict and tomorrow I'm not and blah, blah, blah. Like it might be triggered at certain points. Um, but, but yeah, I think for me, the, some of the recovery is around that true sort of self-acceptance. Yeah. I think you have nailed, uh, no, hit the nail. I think it's hit. No. Yeah. Hit, yeah. What's the saying? <laughs> hit the nail on the head. nailed it. Yeah. Maybe that's what you're thinking. <laughs> oh God. <laughs> <laughs> um, whatever the saying is you know what I mean in that I f think the same thing I think treatment is so heavily focused especially in anorexia on getting you eating again and getting you to a certain weight which obviously is mm. important from a physical aspect that is really important but you know eating disorders are a mental health condition and I don't I, I think I mean I don't want to speak for everybody but most people, you know, when you initially say to them, how did your eating disorder develop? It was that something happened and they turned mm -hmm. to food as a coping mechanism. Obviously, that's not the case for everybody. Um, but like you said, it's it's working out, you know, why why do you turn to food when things are tough? Or why can you not accept your body changing? You know, what what is it that is making you think that you have to be a particular body shape or you have to eat a particular diet? Um, and I, I don't know whether it's different, but mm. I didn't have any of that for my treatment. And I think that's why it took me so long to get to a certain point because I was spending so much time on being like, mm -hmm. okay, well, I need to be able to eat the cake or I need to be able to wear this certain outfit and feel okay. But I wasn't doing the flip side. Like you're saying, I'm like, well, why mm. do I feel like I don't deserve the cake? Or why yeah. do I feel like I can't wear that outfit? I we definitely are. We're trying we're looking to treat at the, the wrong symptoms way. of the problem before actually resolving why does somebody need that coping mechanism to begin with. It's interesting though, because... I did have some mm -hmm. therapy that was more on that level right at the beginning of the process. And I actually mm -hmm. found it so overwhelming. Like I couldn't engage with it. And something that I found interesting is almost mm. when you're sort of starving yeah. your brain, right? You, you can't engage with 
that depth of therapy. So what you need is a really complementary yes. process, don't you? You know, almost again, so to, to overuse the, the analogy to drugs, you, you couldn't have really in-depth therapy with someone turning up like on heroin, right? You wouldn't be able to do it at that point, but then you can't mm. get them off of the drug yeah. before you've resolved, well, why did they need that drug to begin with and the coping that they're trying to do there? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's really, that's why you need a really effective kind of treatment team around you to be able to deal with that. Um, it's yeah. interesting what you say. It's, it's reminded me of my um, experiences with the um, NHS eating disorder service, <laughs> which um, definitely left um, much to be desired from my perspective. And it ties in with the myths, I think, that we're, we're talking about today because of this idea of coping mechanisms. So, you know, I go through the whole NHS referral. They're very... They, another sort of overused phrase, but I think it it did happen. I think they kind of gaslighted me a little bit because they were like, we will definitely give you some kind of treatment. Because what I was really nervous about, I'd been on a waiting list for like six months and COVID had like made that worse and I like kept having stuff cancelled or whatever. So it finally happened and I was like, look, what's the outcome of this going to be? Because obviously I've been waiting around for a long time and, you you know, if it's not really going to happen, then like I can go to private treatment or something, whatever. Um, And then they were like, oh, no, 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 we'll definitely treat you. The point of the referral process is to decide which form of treatment is best for you. So I was like, okay. So I like confidently engaged. We had like a three hour assessment. I literally like opened my heart kind of thing, told them everything they need to know. I was super, super honest. Like you were saying, it's a choice to want to recover. I went into it really on that level of wanting to be honest. And they turned around to me in my report and they said, yeah, we're not recommending anything further for you. Um, because it was evident from your assessment that this eating disorder is operating as a coping mechanism and you've got to decide why at your age you need that coping mechanism. And as a result, we just recommend that you engage in some private treatment to figure that out for yourself, basically. And I was like, is, like you just said, an eating disorder is a coping mechanism for everyone that gets it. So I don't, like, if you're not going to treat somebody because you think it's a coping mechanism, then you're not going to be treating anybody, are you? Why the hell? Because it's a coping mechanism. Does that mean it's it? It's kind of like you were just saying there when you said about um, you know at the start of it you couldn't engage maybe in the therapy it was too overwhelming because your brain was stuck. And I completely agree with that. I think we have to meet people where they're at in the moment. And some people will be ready when they turn up for that intense therapy. Some people won't be. But surely in that instance if somebody is engaging or you know has the symptoms of an eating disorder whether it's a coping mechanism or not which like we've just said mm. i would think for a lot of people it is how, why does that mean that they don't also the fact that you just said yeah that was you really need to decide weird. at your yeah. age so i think it ties into the myths right around right who who gets a coping mechanism who gets an eating disorder like what age does it happen i also think it was kind of tied into the um the atypical side of it right so the weight that you're at is not classified as like Mm -hmm. urgent enough and and this is something that I've been reflecting on like when um because one of your you know the myths of that have been raised is this idea of not everyone with an eating disorder is underweight and I was thinking about like my opinion on that and yeah on Mm -hmm. on the on the sort of you know straight off the bat yeah absolutely agree you can have an eating disorder any size um including restrictive disorders, right? Um, even in sizes categorized as bigger and, and you know, overweight or, or whatever, that you can still be engaging in restrictive eating. It's, it's funny to me that actually mm-hmm. a lot of the, the treatment or, or the recommendations from doctors and stuff about dealing with, you know, losing weight 
if they consider you to be too big, is to engage in eating disorder behaviours. But apparently it's okay because you're bigger, so then it's legitimate, right? But if you were much smaller, then you'd be diagnosed with anorexia. So I find that interesting. Mm. But something that I'm also then interested in is this, this, even this notion of underweight, normal weight and overweight. Because that's all based on like BMI, which we know is nonsense anyway. And for me, it particularly, well, particularly for me, it emerged as being a load of nonsense because I remember in this whole search for the missing periods, I, I spoke to a gynecologist and cause you know, atypical anorexia. So my BMI is hovering around that sort of lower range, but never, but you know, not enough to, I suppose for the NHS eating disorder service to see it as a, as an issue. Um, but the gynecologist told me, we wouldn't expect you to get periods back until your BMI was 20. And I said to her, I said, well, if you don't expect me to get my periods back until I'm 20, why, until my BMI is 20, why is the 18.5, why is the lower rank categorized as healthy then? Because not having periods is a clear sign you're not healthy. And she said, oh, well, you know, it's healthy for some people, but it's not healthy for others. And for you, obviously it's not. So for you, your BMI needs to be 20. And I said, well, doesn't that make BMI completely meaningless then? If what it means for different people to be at health, yeah, maybe some people 18.5, perfectly healthy, they've got periods. Maybe some people need to be higher, whatever. Well, what, what does it mean then? What does it mean to say you're mm-hmm. underweight, you're overweight, you're normal weight? What does that actually mean, right? You, what yeah. is it, is it, it, should it not be about like your yeah. health, right? And what's healthy for you as a person? I would never mm-hmm. look at someone and go, oh, well, you're this BMI, so yeah. therefore you are by definition unhealthy, who knows, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. Well, and, you know, we've all got our own set point for what our healthy weight is. And, um, you know, I've had um, another lady on the podcast, Zoe, and she's really passionate about talking about set point theory because she also was diagnosed with atypical anorexia. But mm. she had, like, really severe cardiac problems because of the weight that she'd lost. And the doctor right, just told okay. her to drink full-fat coke. <laughs> I mean, I mean, full fat Coke, why would you go for that anyway? But the, you mm. know, the, that's t- terrifying um, because she had lost weight and was really restricting, mm. but still it wasn't recognised. Um, I, I think, you know, the whole, like you said, the whole idea of underweight, overweight, normal weight, whatever, is ridiculously damaging and, you know, it varies so much mm. on so many different aspects that, like you said, it's it's so inaccurate why we're still using it. I mean, I think why we're still using it is because it's an easy mm. measure. Um, we're lazy as a society, so we'll just carry on using it. But I think, you know, the word atypical, I, I don't know whether you experienced this as well, but for me, because I was diagnosed with atypical anorexia, mm. um, I just felt like a complete failure. Atypical in itself for an eating disorder mm. where you're striving to be perfect. Definitely. And you feel like you almost don't fit anywhere. You know you're not healthy in terms of how you're behaving around mm. food, or but you're not part of like the real anorexic crowd. They're all, you know, about to mm-hmm. well, not, I don't even know what what the difference is between me and them really, actually. Now looking back on it, but you've got this yeah, it's literally BMI, isn't it? And so literally BMI. Of, I was just going to say, oh, yeah, maybe they're about to faint. Maybe, but actually, so was I a lot of the time. So, um, you know, and so what actually was the difference between yeah. me and them? Yeah, BMI. But 
yeah, that, that whole sort of categorization mm-hmm. and the notion of, yeah, you're not ill enough. And I, and I used to, cause I used to have these ideas of like, oh, well, you know, I'm going on a holiday in a couple of weeks. So like after that, I'll sort myself out of my eating, but just like, let me just get to that holiday. And so I used to think, oh, well, mm-hmm. I'm not ill. I just want to be skinny to go on holiday. So that means I'm not ill. But now I realize, yeah, I was ill to even mm-hmm. want that. I was ill, right. To the extent in terms of the behaviors that I was engaging in. Yeah. That's exactly what made me ill right? The pursuit of that. And so, and the, Mm -hmm. you know, and the lying to yourself almost that, oh, it's only then, and then I'll go and do something different and, and everything will change. And I remember speaking to, you know, an an eating disorder expert and he was like, no, nothing will change. As, as you said, um, Hannah, at the, you know, near the start, um, the eating disorder always wants more. There's always another holiday. There's always another outfit you want to fit into. There's always another Mm -hmm. thing that you've got to do where you do not feel good enough without, you know, looking a certain way or engaging in certain behaviors, it never ends and you'll be, you know, 40, 50, however old, still struggling with it. And it's a waste, right? The, the eating disorder ultimately wants you mm. to have nothing and nobody yeah. except it. That's all it wants for you. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I always find it really interesting when I look back and I think, you know, I distinctly remember standing in the mirror and thinking, I want smaller arms. And so that was my goal. And then I achieved that. But by Mm -hmm. the time I achieved that, something else came along. And I'd noticed always that was the cycle. Whenever I started back engaging in things, it would be like, I'm doing it for this particular reason. And obviously, I mean, this is my experience. I I would understand that a lot of people, you know, might not have that, those quite strong cognitions it might be for different reasons Mm. but mine was always like a a goal-driven thing but I never you know I never recognized the goal Mm, I never gave myself the chance and I think you mentioned sort of character traits or some you know as as part of of it near the start and I think Mm -hmm. you know not to say oh there's an eating disorder personality type or whatever I mean probably not you know that there's lots of diversity and difference in that but but yeah for me it was that that kind Mm -hmm. of perfectionism it really kind of suited my personality almost that mm-hmm. to, to behave in that way um I, I remember like sitting mm-hmm. in front of one of many doctors and you sort of explain yeah you know I've gone down this academic career path I've, I've done this I've done that and he he almost sort of like not rolled his eyes but was a bit like okay I can kind of see why you're here you know because that it almost became an academic exercise mm-hmm. I almost enjoyed knowing how many calories were in x and y i always was proud of myself a bit for having this little talent to like oh i know how much is in this and i can calculate that and the the almost um you know the little buzz of being able to add it all up in your head without even needing a calculator you know all of that it can actually feel quite Mm -hmm. yeah not sort of proud of you well it's a double-edged sword isn't it everything that made you feel in the end you'd feel good about yourself but then you'd almost hate yourself a little bit as well and it was a horrible push and pull Mm -hmm. I think I, I found that it was like an adrenaline rush every time I was, you know, able to do something or anything. I think this as well goes back to, you know, when you think about further than the food or the body, thinking about what it actually brings you, which is something I had to work really hard in recovery to be like, what is my eating sort of giving me? Because it's got to be more than this because I currently hate it. Um, but, but like you just said there, you know, it was, the pride of if I could restrict when I was at like a family event mm. or something, but everybody else was eating, I was better than them. And then that sort of those buzzes. But then, like you said, those things mm. that at the start you think, oh, I'm 
amazing because I can do this then actually become the things that you hate the most because you know a few months down the line I was then going to family events Mm -hmm. and I was just completely I had no emotion to me I didn't want to speak to anyone I didn't want to be there all I wanted to do was go back to my room right it doesn't want you to have anything else this this you know bikini or whatever that you want to fit into on a holiday it doesn't even want you to go on holiday because there'll be food on holiday so it doesn't want you to do anything. And yeah, I, mm-hmm. I completely, yeah, yeah, completely see that, that, that all these things that initially you, you enjoyed. And also then the envy, you know, at first it was all, yeah, I can restrict and I can do this. And you almost feel, you know, not in a like conceited way, but like, okay, I can do something. I've got all this willpower. Um, I'm a you know strong person. But then actually when you look at people, I don't know, at that family party who are enjoying a cake, with each other and laughing, I'm actually then envious of them. I was like, no, you're the stronger ones, actually. You're the ones mm-hmm. enjoying life and really actually having a moment here. Whereas I'm sitting here thinking, oh, well, I don't need, I'm strong enough to say no to that. Okay, well, what, what benefit have I got from being able to do that? It's not benefiting me anymore. And yeah, there's definitely, yeah, that buzz wears off. I, I also think like the hunger high is something that really drew me in. Like I was manic. Mm-hmm. At first, I, I was jumping out of bed at six o'clock in the morning, super mm-hmm. productive. I mean, the exercise I was doing, I, I have no idea how I was even able to do that on what I was eating. But that also, that's another, that wears off. Mm-hmm. You then just feel exhausted and dreadful about yourself, mm-hmm. right? So all of it, all of the little nuggets it gives you, mm-hmm. it's, it's so manipulative, isn't it? It gives you the world and then it completely takes it away and leaves you in such... Yeah a worse position you were or like mm-hmm. I, I sometimes look back to the kind of person I was before yeah. and whilst on some level I think this was a really necessary journey for me to go through in terms of like learning about myself and like my relationships I feel like a, a mentally and psychologically more balanced more self-aware person now and, and everything like that so in that sense I'm grateful for the change but in other regards you look back to the pre-eating disorder you and like how I would behave around food and my relationship to my body. I, I just didn't even really notice my body. I had a lot of, you know, thin privilege, as, as they say. I wasn't in a bigger body. So I was able to not notice my body. I was able to eat what I want and go out and just get on with my life, right? And I know not everybody has that privilege, right? Like I'm a white, middle-class, you know, like normal weight woman, right, before. So I had a lot of privilege, but I look back and I think, I don't know whether I'll ever be fully that non-self-aware about my body ever again. I might have more insight and awareness now, but there will always be that little voice that's a bit, oh, what's going on here, you know? I think it's really interesting. I think, because mm-hmm. I've been toing and froing so much with its full recovery possible. And obviously doing this podcast, I speak to a lot of people that are in recovery or recovered and, you know, I've spoken... I'm really hopeful that it is possible to be fully recovered because I've spoken to a lot of people that are, you know, have reached that. But I think, and this is another myth as well, I think our, and I ramble on about this all the time, but it's just our kind of idea or perspective Mm. of what full recovery means. Like it's, I think often, you know, I see people on social media going out for cake and, like living their best life and feeling absolutely in love with their body and I actually messaged 
one of my friends the other day and I was like I don't think this thing's ever going to go away because there's no way that I could ever like you know happily go to a restaurant and not be slightly worried or I could never wear the, an outfit and not be slightly self-conscious and she said you know she doesn't believe mm -hmm. that there will ever come a day where that will happen but it's how you act on it and I think she she, like, she also knocked the nail on the head in that you know you you might think oh you know I'm having a bit of a difficult time right now my natural response would be to restrict but actually I'm going to go and talk to a friend about it I think mm -hmm. the thoughts might pop into up into your head naturally but actually yeah. acting on them you probably you might not in and that's how I see for recovery now like I I wanted it to be that I could just go into a bakery and get four slices mm. of cake and eat them all at once and have no guilt or anything I don't think that that is going to happen but I think that I could go into a shop have a slice of cake with a friend be fully engaged in conversation and not really think about it mm. maybe have a slight thought but it wouldn't overwhelm me whereas when I was in my eating disorder, I'd be thinking, you know, a week before that slice of cake about, oh my God, what am I going to do? Then I'd get there and I'd mm. barely speak and I'd just try and get through the cake, maybe cry afterwards. So like, yeah. I think it's a completely different situation. It's actually something that I um, have had to do, you know, with the people around me as well. It's, it's not just how you as an individual see your own recovery, but it's also what other people expect in terms of what you look like as a recovered person. Mm. And you know, my, my husband won't, won't mind me saying this, but he has said to me before, you know, when I sort of verbalise, say, eating disorder behavior, feelings or thoughts that I might have, um, he, he sometimes asks me, oh, well, when will you just never have these thoughts again? Because he doesn't want me to have them, right? It's a, you know, I'm not saying he's being unpleasant about it. It's completely reasonable, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm like, well, maybe actually I'll always have them pop up every now and again. Um, but exactly as you say, it's about how you act on it and how it makes you feel ultimately about yourself and whether or not you're able to navigate those feelings. I think it's like, um, like a lot of processes, isn't it? Like thinking about say bereavement, you lose somebody, they die, right? Awful. In the early days, it's all you can think about the thoughts so that, you know, life becomes a real process of just having to get mm -hmm. through life, right? While you're, while you're grieving for the person that you've lost. And then, you know, 10 years down the line, yeah, you'll still think of them. And maybe sometimes it'll be a bit sad and maybe other times you'll just think of them and it'll be fine. And, mm -hmm. you, you know, and, and that's the process, isn't it, that you kind of have to go through. And I, I almost see like recovery is similar to that, that in the early days of recovery, you know, as we were saying earlier, gosh, you know, everything is about this recovery, isn't it? The meal plan, the, the family and the, the people around <laughs> you that are just so affected by, by all of it. But then actually as the time goes on, and more days go by where it isn't the center of the universe, where those thoughts are not so constant. And I also think um, it's practice, right? Every slice of cake you go out with with a friend and tell yourself, mm -hmm. right, you know, this is what it's all about. It's about being with my friend and having this moment. The more you do that, the more you practice doing that, the more it becomes what you do. And because actually not just because you're faking it, mm -hmm. but because it's really yeah. amazing. It's really enjoyable. Right. And you sit and you do it and you think, no, hang on, this is the life I yeah. actually want. In a way, it's almost coming down the other side of the eating disorder, isn't it? The eating disorder is, a, is an escalation, isn't it? Of, of disordered behaviors that grip you tighter and tighter over time. Mm -hmm. And then coming out the other side of it is just practicing the reverse until the reverse becomes true. 
And and I think, mm. yeah, you have to be really gentle on yourself, but also yeah. you know, people you know going through recovery. I think that's really important to see it that way. Yeah. And I, I think this was another thing I spoke to the friend about in that the eating disorder, you know, as much as like you said, I wouldn't wish it on anybody. And, you know, I don't, I don't want anybody to have an eating disorder. Mm. But at the time, it protected me. And it, it was it was something that at the time I felt I needed to get through that. It's when it then comes to the point where you don't want it anymore and you're so entrenched that you can't mm. then get out. I think that's where it's really difficult. Um, but I think, again, you know, one thing that I found really difficult in recovery when you were kind of you know saying about like you're here and then you have the eating disorder and you kind of come back was I just used to think okay so I've done this for X mm. amount of years and I'm just going back to exactly where I started and and I felt I was really frustrated at myself because I was like you've wasted so long by engaging in this eating disorder but actually yes you know wasn't a great situation and I'm sure everybody around me would agree that there was probably things I could have done differently to mean that you know Mm. I didn't have an eating disorder but I don't think it was a waste because like you said you know um mentally Mm. and psychologically I I am so much stronger now um and Mm. I guess in life we do have to go through difficult things to get to a certain point and I don't know. I don't want to sound like I'm not glorifying an eating disorder. Yeah. In the well, but... you know, I fully agree with you on that. It's really difficult, isn't it, to sort of articulate it in a way of saying, oh, well, actually, I'm grateful I had the eating disorder. Like, I'm not. I, I guess I'm grateful for what I was able to learn about mm-hmm. myself as a result of going through that. And also not just me as an individual, but mm-hmm. like the quality of the relationships you have in your life. I think genuinely um, it's it's improved that. and mm-hmm. And also for the people around me, reflecting on like their relationship with food and what they feel like I you know we have better conversations about stuff we're more alive to diet culture and shaming of people in bodies and we just never do that now and I'm like wow isn't that fantastic that Mm. because of what I went through we're so much more accepting of diversity of bodies and and food and we enjoy it actually so much more all of us now because we realize the dark place it can go to and I think it's not that you think, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm really glad that happened. It's more just, well, it did happen. I don't have a choice that it happened. I can't, I can't yeah, and the fact that it did happen and I can't yeah. make it go away. Well, yeah, that's true. What choice do I have now? I can say, oh, my goodness, I've wasted all these years. What a complete disaster. Or I can think, well, you know, how, how fantastic, actually, that I had an opportunity, however dark it was, to be able to learn something about myself. No, for other people... I'd recommend learning about mm. it in a different way, right? And, and you know, and not necessarily going to that place, but, but, you know, in the end, the, the learning had to happen somehow. And for me, actually, if we think, like, about what recovery means, I know a lot of people, and I completely accept why this would be helpful to somebody, would say, for them, they almost characterise the eating disorder thoughts as, as, like, a voice, you know, a um, like a bad friend, you know, an external person that is is not a good person right and i think that can be really Mm. helpful like would a friend ever talk to you like this no you know this is not someone that's got your best interests at heart but for me actually i had a therapist once tell me that actually um well she made a suggestion of a way of thinking about it was the eating disorder being one of many voices that you have inside of yourself and she described it and it was really interesting analogy that like you're chairman of or chairperson of the board and you've got all these different sort of thoughts feelings and like 
impulses within you, whatever we want to call it. And when you're not listening to a part of yourself, that voice will just shout louder and louder and louder and become more and more dysfunctional. So actually, when you get those eating disorder thoughts, Mm -hmm. think to yourself, right, what part, and that sounds a bit woohoo, I guess, in a way, but what part of yourself are you not listening to? Like what, what, what's it trying to tell you, right? About how you Mm. might be feeling because we all know, don't we, that wanting to restrict is not, oh, now suddenly I want to restrict. It's, it's a response to something we're not coping with, something we're struggling with. And so what is that? What is that voice trying to tell you? What are you not listening Mm -hmm. to? And I've said that to like family and friends before, like, you know, if you, if you think someone say slipping back into some of their behaviors, rather than saying, oh goodness, you know, how much are you eating and what are you thinking about food? Actually say like, how are you feeling right now? You know, what's going on for you right now? And get them to talk about that because that's Mm. what that voice, well, for me anyway, it's less of an external voice. It's an internal voice that's trying to tell me something and I'm just not listening. So it's telling me in a messed up way, you know? I like completely agree. And that's what I've been trying to do over the past few years when I'm, Mm. I'm like tempted to go back I'm like ooh, what's lacking here like you know are you you're not getting out enough seeing friends or are you you know satisfied with your job or or whatever you know is everything ticking over and often like mm-hmm. you know once you have a sit down and you think hmm, it's not but I think we're so wrapped up in life that we don't often give ourselves the mm-hmm. chance to just sit down and think oh, is everything okay right now um because we do carry on and then that's when Yeah, no, I completely agree. And I think particularly if you're the kind of person that doesn't always want to say when you're struggling with something, you know, like say if I'm worried about something at work, I'll often just be like, oh, no, 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 just like put it out of my mind, pretend it's not really happening. But then when you actually sit down, you go, do you know what, I'm actually really worried about something and you open up about it. And and then that, yeah, that voice sort of quietens down a bit, doesn't it? Because yeah, it's always representative of that. And I think that's where the self-awareness has to come into it, right? You've got to be quite alive to that. Because I think, um, and it goes back to the idea of the myth of an eating disorder being shameful. Everybody has their coping mechanisms. Some of them are functional. Some of them are dysfunctional. It probably all ranges on a bit of a continuum, doesn't it? I remember speaking with a therapist once about like alcohol and like, um, you know, if you're anxious or something, is it bad to have a drink at the end of the day if you're feeling anxious? She was like, well, not by definition, actually. If that enables you, I don't know, to sit and have a chat with somebody about how you're feeling and it's one glass of wine and then, you know, and you've, you've had a good chat with your mum or something about what's gone on that day. No, you probably don't have a problem, as it were. But if that becomes the only way that you can cope and you do it alone and you don't then open up and you don't move forward, mm. then, yeah, no, then probably it's kind of dysfunctional. So it's about kind of looking at that, isn't it? It's like, it's like the notion of comfort eating. Is comfort eating a bad thing? Is it bad to just, I don't know, you've had a bad day and you get into bed with a Mm. bowl of ice cream. Is that bad? Are you emotionally eating? Are you comfort eating as a coping mechanism? No, that's probably a completely legitimate thing to want to do, right? Mm -hmm. And I think actually being aware of when it's shifting into something that's not so great um, is is the trick, isn't it? To be able to identify that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would absolutely agree. I think... um, I think that with a lot of things, and that's, I think, one thing I really struggle with a lot of the time is if people, um, I guess this kind of aligns when you were saying about, like, you know, if you want to have a drink in the evening and that's how you calm down, but then that becomes the only way that you can do that, then, yes, that would be an issue. It would be, you know, 
I could have one drink, but then equally, you know, if I'm having 50 drinks a day, that's it's like, you know, what have you. And I always see that with eating disorders and find that really difficult to navigate with my friends and family. If somebody is actually, you know, they're not super happy mm. in their body and they want to lose weight, I'm like, oh my God, I don't know how to cope. Like, let me just envelope you up and I don't want you to go through what I've been through. But actually they're doing it in a really... You know, they're doing it in a, I don't even know what yeah. it be, but in a healthy way, I don't want to say that word. Um, and it's not something that's compulsive or restrictive. They're just, they 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 kind of want to do it. And then mm. once they're, they've achieved what they wanted to, they're able to then leave it alone. Whereas I think the worrying thing would be if that then became something, mm. I mean, I don't know how you would sort of intervene that I've kind of waffled on about. Um, but... I guess it's a similar thing in that, you know, if your eating disorder behaviour becomes the only thing yeah, and that I you guess can do. The disordered eating that we see as part of diet culture and then an eating disorder, it's it's what you're using it for, right? Yeah. And where it becomes that kind of toxic coping mechanism where it's not optional anymore. There's no mm -hmm. there's no exiting from it. It's it's got you in its grip. And I do think diet yeah. culture can be a bit compulsive as well, actually, and people can feel that's not optional. So it's again, it's it's a really tricky one to tease out. And I think, mm. I mean, it's a whole other kettle of fish, isn't it? Is there such a thing as healthy weight yeah. loss? Um, and can we actually even conceptualise that? And if we if we think about set weight, yes. Well, if you've got a goal in mind for your weight loss, how do you know whether that's your set weight and what's even healthy for you? Where does that goal even come from? Does it come from like a notion mm -hmm. of what a good weight would be? And something I guess I try and think yeah. of to resolve it because, yeah, absolutely like you, I don't want to be this person that just like freaks out about absolutely everything all the time when people are being perfectly reasonable about what they want to do. Um, mm. But at the same time, I do try and encourage people to think, well, like why don't you focus on like health and nutrition and what feels good and all of that? And then the weight that you end up being will just be – an outcome mm -hmm. of that process right if if the weight if a, if a certain weight and body be. shape yeah. is what the goal is well a where has that come from like be honest with yourself about where you've even got that goal from and secondly what do you have to do mm. to get there and what do you have to do to maintain it because we know a lot of people achieve something and then like the vast majority of them then bounce back to whatever mm -hmm. their set weight should be um so i think it's really tricky but i try yeah, I try not to say too much in a way because I'm I'm not going back to like pre-eating disorder. I'm everybody's therapist where I'm not qualified to be so because that was completely inappropriate for the people in my life and myself. But also like my priority really is making sure that this sounds a bit OTT, if, but you'll see what I mean, like that I'm safe from diet talk. If other people want to engage in diet talk and weight loss talk, I'm not going to try and mm. save the world with yeah. that anymore. Like I do, I have my opinion on it. I talk about it all the time. I'll, I'll put it out there. But mm. almost my priority is like, okay, that's really nice for you. Um, good luck. <laughs> sometimes that's what I say. Or sometimes I might say more. I think it's all about like mm -hmm. making, it's again, it's boundaries, yeah. isn't it? It's making that judgment call about what you feel comfortable with. But I'm never going to be dishonest in what I think. Absolutely. You know, most people around me know yeah. my views on this now, you know, and I'm not going to celebrate mm -hmm. people's weight loss or tell them that I think it's a good idea yeah. to have a really set, target for what you want to achieve I think you're so right actually there what you said about um I mean like you said I don't know whether we can say the word mm. healthy but um because what even does that mean um but I think you know 
having it in yeah it's just a really difficult thing to navigate isn't it but basically like what I'm thinking in my head is I have a family member who Mm. was just a bit concerned like for health reasons um because they didn't really exercise and um they kind of were were questioning whether their food choices were Mm. appropriate um and so they came to me and it was a really interesting situation because I was like, mm. this is interesting because you're coming to the person that's had an eating disorder. But actually, the way that it, the way that I, I, I was a really good reflection to me mm. was if that had been a few years ago, I would have had a complete meltdown and would have been like, I can't believe you're coming to me. That's so outlandish. And, um, you know, please protect yourself. Don't do any of this. But actually, we sat down mm. and we were able to have like a really nice, calm conversation. Um, and they actually just wanted to start doing a bit more exercise to get out a bit more and to improve their heart health. And I actually felt really positive coming out of it to be like, I've helped mm. you there because I've been saying about how to not get obsessive with things. And they were talking about calorie counting. And I was like, to be honest with you, I don't think it's necessary and it can Mm. get quite obsessive. So it actually felt like a really productive conversation rather than it needing to be like Mm. a, I'm going to freak out right now because you're asking me all these questions. But yeah, now I think it's nice actually to be able to have a constructive conversation, isn't it? Um, With people about that where where you get to like be you and, and, mm. and have your, your beliefs about it, but also, you know, engage with where they're coming from as well, because people aren't one dimensional, are they? I think, um, you know, there is, there's a lot of valid mm-hmm. reasons why people w- might want to move more and they might want to create like more, say, diversity in their diet and, and all of that. And because they're actually not feeling great in themselves. And that mm-hmm. I think is, 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 you know, something, again, it's, it's about that self-awareness, isn't it? Um, and I think being able to have a conversation on those terms can be really valuable, actually. And I think mm. it's a real shame in our culture with, say, you know, the yeah. diet culture mentality around everything's about tracking and, and, and counting and everybody's got a... You know, I had a Fitbit when I started mm-hmm. my journey into all this and, God, I ended up, like, smash... It was, oh, mm. God, I smashed that up as, like, part of a ritualistic kind of Isn't thing. I never... I mean, I, I hate the things, right? I, the, the outsourcing Good. of your decision-making <laughs> around your body, like, not even just how many calories you need to consume because mm-hmm. of what it's telling you on your watch, but, but also, like, how well did I sleep last night? Let's look on my app, rather than thinking, well, how well do I feel I slept last night? Yeah, and I think mm. that's a really... I don't like my the development well of tracking and monitoring yeah. absolutely everything about our like physical and mental selves. I, I don't think that's great. Maybe I'm being a, I don't know, retrograde around tech or something. Oh, but, you know, I really don't think it's a good development. And I think that's what's a real I shame for people so. in terms of all of us being able to think about our own health and what health means to us and what even whether we want to pursue health and all of that. It's so wrapped up in some of that of that cultural and probably quite commercial agenda as well. And I think it blocks mm-hmm. people from really being able to engage with, well, yeah, what's actually yeah. right for me and what do I want to do around food and, and movement? I don't think, no, we don't all have to, yeah, oh, God, mm-hmm. shun exercise and eat and, you know, endlessly. No, I'm not saying that's the solution. It's, it's more just, right, how can we look through all the noise of all that diet culture nonsense and actually think about what's right for us? And, and we, you know, we have to be strong as people who have had a, a disorder. Mm-hmm. But I also think a yeah. lot of people have got to be strong to resist what it's telling you, right? All the bodily self-hatred out there. I mean, I remember it from, mm. you're, you're really inculcated, inculcated yeah. with it from being a teenager, right? 
being taught to really quite despise your body, even when there's nothing wrong with it. Yeah, I think in a in a way, I actually worry more. I worry mm. less for people that have had eating disorder history, and I worry more for people that haven't, because I think, like you were saying before, going through the eating disorder journey gives you so much self awareness. And now, you know, if something does trigger me, then I am so self aware of it, and I know exactly what to do. Whereas if I, if I hadn't mm. have gone through this journey, I would think that everything was just normal. You know, having to do a certain amount of steps a day or a certain amount of exercise or eating a certain number of calories. If I have a conversation with somebody mm. that hasn't had an eating disorder, they're like, well, yeah, obviously that's what you have to do. And I'm just like, that's, I think that's really sad. Like you're saying that we have to turn to something else to be like, oh, am I hungry? Or, you know, can I eat? Or mm. did I sleep well? Or have I moved enough today? Like, you know yourself if you really are able to tune in, whether you're hungry, whether you're full, mm. whether you want to move, or whether you actually just want to sit on the sofa with a cup of tea. Like, yeah, exactly. We were cavemen and we knew what to do. Oh, my God. I, honestly, <laughs> that's just reminded me somebody got a step counter for their dog. Oh, to make sure they're doing it. And I was okay. I mean, with a therapist once, because I've got a dog, and um, and we were talking about actually how dogs are inspirational, right? She was saying to me, you know, when you get to the park, is your dog worrying about its heart rate <laughs> and how many sets it's doing and all the rest of it? No, it's just bouncing off the lead and having the best time ever. And that's what movement should be about, right? It should be intuitive. And then yeah. when he's knackered, he's collapsing down, he doesn't want to do it anymore. And then he comes home and he sleeps all day, right? Like, actually, yeah, intuitive. And I think oh, it's exactly, yeah. I completely agree with you in a way. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> not to glorify having had an eating disorder, absolutely not. But I think actually one way in which I've changed it's not just, yeah, better self-awareness of, you know, emotional, psychological stuff, better relationships. Also, though, definitely has been, I will never go back to anything to do with diet culture. Like, all the continuum stuff of disordered eating all the way up to eating disorder, I won't, I don't want any of it in my life anymore. I will never do that. You know, the little thoughts might pop up every now and again, but I know just mm -hmm. to kind of ignore that and move on. And then actually... Yeah, you see the people around you who know they don't have an eating disorder. I'd never put that onto them. I don't, you know, at all. But they're still trapped in that and they're still taking up way too much of their day. And it's it's really not great. And I've actually found some of that material yeah. just about diet culture in general. You know, I listen to a lot of podcasts, some of it on eating disorders. Actually, just listening to the stuff around like the toxic nature of day-to-day -day diet culture has been really important part of this journey of just being like, yeah, I don't want any of it. So yeah, maybe old me was like not disordered, but I yeah. definitely, I tried out stupid mm -hmm. diets. I worried about parts of my body, like, you, you know, and, and actually recovery has been mm -hmm. about completely not engaging in any of that stuff. So I feel quite lucky in some regards for that, but I used to feel quite annoyed yeah. because I almost thought like, you know, right at the beginning, say recovery, I'd be like, well, everyone's banging on at me to sort myself out, but I'm looking at all of you and you're not eating that cake because you're worried you're going to get fat. You're not doing this because of that. And you almost yeah. get a bit hostile, don't you? Because of how it's all around you. I suppose like mm. the alcoholic that sees people getting drunk thinking, mm -hmm. well, why do you get to get drunk? And I'm the only one being told I've got a disorder, right? Yeah. So sometimes I would find it frustrating, yeah. but now at this stage, I'm finding it more Mm. Yeah, just part of the enlightening process of it all, really. Liberating, I think. Mm, definitely. Mm. I think that's that's 
I think I've already said this, but I think that's why recovery is so difficult because it is so normalized. You know, what you were saying there about, um, sorry, what you said at the start, um, about you went on a diet before you got married. And I have a really distinct memory of my sister got married when I was 19 and I was one of her bridesmaids and we had a bridesmaids chat and, um, there hadn't really been much talk about it, but then on the day before the wedding, um, somebody commented like last gym sesh, mm. um, before the big day, um, hope it pays off. I like, I, I didn't know what to do with myself. I was like, Oh my God, nobody told me that I was meant to lose weight. Like I'm going to like, they're all going to have lost loads of weight. I'm going to be the biggest one there, blah, blah, blah. And I got home and I said to my mum, well, I, I, I don't know what I'm going to do. Like they're all, and she was like, Hannah, you are perpetually on a diet because you have an eating disorder. If you turned around to me and said you wanted to go on a diet for your sister's wedding, there'd be no chance. But I was so like focused on being normal and wanting to engage. I just completely, I didn't even realize that I, what I was doing for the past however many years is what they were doing for that short period of time for a wedding. But it was so normalized and the chat was so normal. The fact that they put it in the chat about, you know, losing weight for the wedding. I was like, why is this so normalized in that it's okay because you know i don't know maybe that is just how diet culture is is that it's so normalized yeah. the time that you you have the disorder and that stuff pops up it's almost it goes back to that idea of the eating disorder never being happy right you're already running yourself into the ground beyond anything these people in the chat could mm. probably be doing but it's still not enough if they yeah. make a comment oh god maybe i'm not doing enough maybe this isn't okay mm -hmm. And that's what's so depressingly miserable about it. I think in recovery, yeah. when people make comments like that, it's, um, yeah, it's it's kind of a trickier one, isn't it? In terms of like, you know, you don't want to be going back there, but it can be then quite, yeah, difficult then to kind of process it and not mm -hmm. go back there. Yeah. I think it's like the rose tinted glasses. Um, I definitely like recently I've been thinking about the rose tinted glasses and kind of reflecting like, oh, you know, slightly tempted and, and stuff like that. And, you know, this is the first time I'm kind of saying it out loud, but I think it's important to say it out loud. But you don't, I think that's the problem. You don't think mm -hmm. about all the negatives associated with it. It's just the, you know, the couple of positives that you can, that you can think about and, actually trying to be really honest with it. I think one issue I have as well, I don't know whether you've experienced mm -hmm. this, but my memory is so bad mm -hmm. from that period. All I have to go on now is pictures. And in the pictures, I look happy. Like that sort of biased recollection of it all. Um, you definitely like remember all of the positives and you almost struggled. There were times where I was like, why have I even tried to get help? Like, mm. what was it that was actually really that difficult about any of that? You, you, yeah, you don't remember it. And I think, um, uh, although it was definitely truly awful mm. and and I think that's all just part of the tricks it plays on your mind again absolutely and mm -hmm. in terms of yeah pictures like I, I mean it's just awful isn't it I think it took me a long time um to get rid of clothes from that time that was a big step and yeah looking back at pictures there was a mm. long time where I was like I look better here this was the best I've ever looked and if only I could eat normally and not have a disorder and look like that and actually the grieving process for that, I think, is like another part of the journey, isn't it? There's obviously mm. like physical clothes that you, you know, you cannot wear mm. anymore. And that took me a really long time 
um, to get my head around uh, because it was almost it was part of that where I was trying to convince myself mm. that I could recover without anything really changing. And I think that's the thing, you know, what you're saying about choice with recovery. Part of the choice is <laughs> that things are going to change and you've got to be okay with them changing. Whereas I think another lie that eating disorder tells you for a mm. while is, yeah, 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 you can do everything everyone's telling you to do, but not nothing actually really needs to change. Your clo- the clothes you're still, the, you know, the skinny clothes will still fit. You'll still look a certain way in the mirror or whatever. And yeah. that's not true either. So you can't take the good and, and carry on it. And, and actually, it was like what I was saying before, why do we even define those things as good anyway? Why do we see that picture as like the best I ever look? Because it's the smallest I've ever looked. Why are we equating mm. the smallest with the best? And I think so all of it, it's like you've got to be mm. okay with it changing. But yeah. also then ask yourself, why would you not be comfortable with it changing? What's holding you back? And I think, yeah, some of the biased recollection is definitely there. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's, I think that's really important. And I think it is like, I really liked what you said there about grieving because you are, you are losing something. And I think that's often what isn't really talked about in therapy is that you are losing something and, and you do need to find something to replace that. That's, you know, and an eating disorder is really strong and it, it feels so much. So often if you do try and replace it with things, it, it doesn't often feel enough. And I think that's sometimes when other mental health conditions come, come in, which I think why, what you've said about treating the, you know, the actual, like, I can't remember what word to say, but rather than treating the symptoms, actually treating, you know, what is making you feel that you need this. Like often I've, I've had it in therapy where, you know, it's all, on what basis do you pick your friends on what basis do you value people oh because they're interesting they're funny they're this or that and 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 they're and and, you know obviously then the reverse is well that's why people want to have a relationship with you and it's not about your size and blah blah blah. and I, I almost think there's like two things with that well one I don't think I'm this interesting funny great person that I think all my friends are so I don't actually get that and secondly the fact of the matter is, in our fat phobic society, people do treat you better when you're smaller. So you're not just grieving for this thing you personally want, these clothes you personally want to fit yeah. into. You are grieving for, or, you know, not grieving for a bit, but the fact is people did respond to you more positively when you were smaller. And you've got to let that go. Something I've had to learn to do is be, well, that's their problem. Mm. The people that complimented me at that time, not in an aggressive way towards them, but I'm going to be, you know, I think to myself, right, like anybody mm. that complimented me when I was at my smallest weight is, 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 you know, clearly themselves affected by diet culture, clearly themselves got, got you know, that, that's their thing. That's not something I've got to chase. I'm not going to restrict mm. all my food in order to chase a compliment from somebody to feel good about myself for something that's come from a really toxic cultural dynamic that that person isn't responsible for. I'm not blaming them for it. We're all part of it. We're all victims of it. And so I'm mm. not going to chase that. But actually dealing with that, dealing with that process yeah. of like, yes, people have responded to me in a particular way when, you know, I got smaller. And that is a factual thing that happened. And we have to be honest about that. We have to be honest about the culture that we're trying to recover in. And it's not to pass the buck. You know, I'm not saying it's, it is mm. an individual thing at the end of the day. You've got to do it yourself. But I think we do have to be honest in recovery about the fact that the culture is kind of against us. Actually, we don't live in a recovery culture. I remember telling one of my friends once, in order to recover, mm. I've got to go against everything our culture no. celebrates about weight loss, bodies, all of it. 
And I, so that's the uphill struggle I've got. Not only have I got to deal with all the things that mm. I feel personally, I've also got to fight against that and do the complete opposite. And she was like, yeah, fair enough. That sounds pretty hard. <laughs> and I think we do. <laughs> no, she said it in a really nice way. Sorry. That mm. Yeah, whatever. No, she was really sweet about it. She was like, <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. You know, I didn't even think about it on that <laughs> And I think more honestly, maybe, you know, I had some great therapists actually yeah. to talk about all of that stuff. And I think that is a really important part of it. Yeah, I, I I couldn't agree more. It's like you're, you know, you're not only fighting against the thoughts in your head telling you to do something and that, you know, you're not going to be good enough if you don't do it. But then you've actually got that, you know, physical people out there saying it as well, which is really difficult. But um, I think that's one thing I find still difficult to this day is, you know, there's such a, a great recovery community, you know, on Instagram and on Twitter and people have brilliant conversations. And then I'll come out of that and go and hang out with my friends and somebody, I mean, I think I don't really have any friends that are massively like engulfed into diet culture, yeah. because I think if they were, I'd be like, come on, let's, mm. let's just pipe it down. Um, or maybe people just don't say it around. Me. I don't, I don't think it's that. Um, but sometimes when you are in society mm. and then you hear those comments I'm like oh my god how are we so backwards because I've I guess built up a community and built up friends that you know are on a similar wavelength mm. to me you know like like you I, I've you know my friends are not mm -hmm. ever gonna be I suppose like really aggressively into the whole diet culture thing I mean I think some of them are on a personal level for themselves but <sighs> you know they they kind of wouldn't start burdening me with all of that and telling me about like what I need to do mm. around weight or whatever um because no otherwise probably not the right friends for me you know yeah and actually but then I've got some close friends and family where actually you can have really honest compassionate conversations so I'd say I've definitely got people in my life who you know would still engage in negative mm. self-body talk and you know all of that kind of thing and and you know and I just you try to just be compassionate right and you say oh, you know, I think it's actually really sad how we talk about our bodies in this way, right? Mm. And so it's not me turning around being like, oh my God, don't say this around me. It's really insensitive. Mm. I'm just like, oh, isn't it a shame that we've kind of got to do this? And that, I don't know, we eat a big meal and then we're yeah. already thinking about the exercise we're going to do tomorrow to compensate because we've been so bad. And I just, I more approach it um, probably like mm. being academic like from an almost intellectual exercise yeah. like being a bit like philosophical about it like oh isn't it interesting that we have to talk about ourselves in this way right it's a shame actually and wouldn't we love that not to have to be the case and that's mm. the thing that I nobody disagrees with that one everybody that I speak to when I say wouldn't it be nice if we didn't feel the need to do this they're all like yeah it would mm. be amazing not to feel the need to do this right to just be able to eat that meal without mm. thinking you have to compensate for it somewhere or whatever. <laughs> and I said well yeah in a way that's what like eating disorders are like on a much more serious scale mm. that it becomes thoughts and feelings around food that you you wish you didn't have to have but you do and in a way wouldn't it be nice if we could all reflect on the thoughts and feelings we have around food whether we're like disordered or not mm. right but I think that's another thing without recovery I remember a friend saying to me once before because I got upset about a comment somebody made and he was like you have spent years talking about how food makes you feel and how your body makes you feel mm. and you have so much self-awareness around that a lot of people don't have that so they say a comment flippantly and it doesn't mean anything but for you it's like a it's a big a big core part mm. so I think you know 
as we have said a thousand times, not to glorify sort of in the slightest, mm. but I think, you know, it does give you the armour that you need against diet culture. So in a way, you know, well, yeah, that's... absolutely. That's a whatever. No, it's not going to happen because I already know it's a con. I know it leads to nowhere other than misery, regardless mm-hmm. actually of whether you develop an eating disorder at the end of it. Yeah, for me, it ended yeah. in, you know, life-threatening mental health problem, right? One of the most serious mm. mental health problems we have, in, in, you know, in society. But, yeah, I think it also leads mm. to a lot of misery underneath that level of seriousness, right? Even if you never get to that point. I don't think anybody on constant dieting, constant critical bodily mm. talk and all of that, I don't think that makes anybody happy, right? That's why you've got to keep doing it, right? It's only actually exiting from that where you can you can really yeah. start to heal, I suppose, from diet culture. Yeah. You're told, no, it's you that's not yeah. good enough. And I think it's a real, you know, that's what you're told. you do have to fight from the top to the bottom of society, right? Because mm. like the NHS is implicated in it, the government strategies around obesity, like all of it reinforce that notion that, yeah, as individuals, you are all failing somehow if your body looks like this, right? But then in the world that we live where we're told you need to be smaller, but then actually you're surrounded by, you know, if you just walk down the street, there's so much advertising for for you know food that you know is obviously perfectly fine to have but maybe not to overconsume and stuff like that i think it's really interesting i think um to look at the society we live in in that the messages we receive is you know smaller is better but actually it, it actually it's actually really clever i think you know hats off to, to you know to society because it's like we're going to give you all the stuff that mm-hmm. will make you feel that you need to be smaller and we will help you with that but only at a cost but you won't be able to do it because of everything else that we've put in society so you're just going to keep coming back to us and we, you're going to spend money on the stuff yeah. that won't help you yeah. it's like okay why don't you Failing. why don't you not cause the problem to begin with and i i, I feel the same mm. when I would say like advertising for like all of the products to make you feel better about yourself okay you know, you, you were going on merrily about your day, not really feeling particularly concerned. Suddenly, I don't know, there's some advert with, you know, some supermodel. Oh, wouldn't you love to have abs like this so you can go on the beach? Oh, if you do, look at this product you can buy in order to do that. And you're like, I wasn't even thinking about my abs, but now I am. And now I can buy your thing to make that better. I was actually yeah. going to go on the beach anyway and not really be that worried about it. But now yeah. you've made me worried about it. And like, how incredible that you've got something to solve this worry I now have <laughs> that, you know, wasn't even. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just. No, it's it's awful, isn't it? And then what we say, yeah. we say, let's talk. You get me. Teach kids in schools about like critical media awareness. And you think, okay, why don't we actually deal with the problem at source though? Why don't we deal with people's rights to be able to exist in public and private space without constantly being made yeah. to feel that they're not good enough and that there's, look, all these solutions to that feeling that we've manufactured in you. I mean, it's just, yeah, it's, it's awful really. But that's the culture of yeah. recovery that, well, the culture that we're trying to recover within, right? It's not conducive. It's yeah. not conducive to anybody's health, right? Yeah. No, I, I can't think of a single person that actually helps. That's not a choice, right? So then mm-hmm. they're like, oh, well, I'm okay because I align with it. But, oh, God, I better make sure I carry on aligning yeah. with it. That then becomes a stress in itself. Yeah. Oh, God, what a... It's boring, actually, mm-hmm. when you think about it, right? Yeah. Like, that's a, I've said this to my friends before. I'm like, diet culture is incredibly boring. What else <laughs> could we be thinking about and doing? What incredible stuff could be going on 
if we weren't engaging mm. with, with all this nonsense, right? So yeah. much. And I always used to think that about, um, because my eating disorder was when I was like doing my GCSEs and my A-levels. I mean, obviously being a perfectionist, I didn't do too bad anyway, but mm. oh my God, I would have been the brightest person in the whole entire world if I wasn't having to dwell on like, you know, what am I going to eat and numbers yeah, and no, all it's of a waste that, of, you know? Yeah, it tells you you need to do all this. It's, I guess mm. it's almost like the sort of obsessive compulsive disorder, yeah. isn't it? I can leave the house safely as long as I check everything, you know, a million times or whatever. And that's how I used to feel. Right, okay. If mm. I know exactly what I've eaten and exactly what's going on, right, then I mm -hmm. can go out in the world and be fine. But I've wasted God knows how long getting myself to that point, right? And it's a complete con. Yeah, it could have gone mm. out into the world and been fine anyway, right? And then you would have had all this extra yeah. time um, to, yeah. you know, be doing more interesting, exciting things <laughs> with your life. Yeah, than <laughs> tracking food. Yeah. Well, I... I could speak to you, carry on forever. It's been so lovely to chat to you. Um, and yeah, thank you for all your insight and, you know, going through. It's, it's funny because when I first was like thinking about this podcast, I was like, oh, I'm going to ask you like a myth and then you'll give me an answer. And it was so structured. Mm -hmm. Actually, that was so wonderful that we just, that you just kind oh, of went on. you. When I was yeah. talking to my husband about it, like in preparation, I was like, "No, haven't done any of that. I'm just going to do a <laughs> conversation. We'll just talk about whatever because, yeah, that's how we've got to be, isn't it?" <laughs> yeah, good. Yeah, I think it makes such a nice conversation as well when it can be free flowing. And I think your kind of thoughts and ideas then really exactly. expand because you're not yeah. limited. And please, I've done it. Yes, and hopefully, listeners, oh, it's um, been lovely. Have enjoyed it as well. Yeah. If you enjoyed listening today, you won't want to miss next week's episode. So be sure to subscribe. Eating disorders are crippling illnesses, but with the right support, they can be recovered from. We really hope you enjoyed this episode. But if you require more support right now, please look into charities such as First Steps and Beat for support, or talk to someone you trust.